Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we know that your word is true. We know that all wisdom and knowledge starts with you. And so I pray, Father God, in this, in this time that we have together, you would help us to really see your heart for us as we study your word, to really see, oh God, your desire for us to know you through your, through your word, for us to grow in scripture and knowledge of your will and purposes and plans for us. I pray, God, that from our time together, you would also cultivate in us disciplines, practices, habits, oh God, that will, will, will grow fruit in us in our walks with you. Father, we want to know you, and we thank you for your word that has made you available to us, O oh Lord, to know you more, to, to, to be able to see your character, to, to know your plans and purposes for us. So, God, I pray that you'd edify us. I pray that you would just help us as we study together, and help me, O oh Lord, once again. Use me as your instrument of peace, and help me teach this uh, afternoon, O oh Lord, uh, according to your will and purposes. We glorify you, O God, and we thank you for our time. We pray for the food that's going to come, and we ask that you bless that to our bodies as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. Well, glad everyone uh, could make it out this afternoon, and uh, uh, I think this is the biggest workshop that we, we've done or had here at Plus Life, which is good. I'm glad there's a great interest in, in knowing how to study the Word of God from our church. Again, we want to be that kind of church right? As we talked about this morning, our, 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 one of our missions is to revolve around Christ, so to cultivate uh, lives that are centered around Christ. And the first part of that statement is, we preach and teach the Word of God boldly and have it shape the life and nature of plus life to be a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, Spirit-leading, and people-loving community. So the Word of God is essential to all of that. Now, why do we want to have workshops like this? Why can't we just sort of just, hey, you know, here's an outline of, uh, of how to study your Bible, and, and, or, or, or why can't we just preach it from um, the pulpit? Well, the reality is we want biblical literacy. This is the hope, this is the goal for our church and our community, is biblical literacy. So that when you have other teachers out there, wolves in sheep's clothing, as Scripture calls them, and are preaching heresy and are preaching things that are not in line with Scripture, we would be biblically literate enough to be able to say, hey, that does not line up with God's Word. We also want to cultivate this desire in everybody that we would be like the Berean Christians in, in the book of Acts, where regardless of who's preaching up here, regardless of what sermon you're hearing on podcasts and whatnot, you'll always go back to the tested and tried and true Word of God to make sure everything that you're hearing is actually legit, is actually uh, from the Spirit of God, is actually the Word of God. That's our desire. We, we want to cultivate uh, biblical literacy in our community, and I, again, this is a great opportunity to do that by teaching us practical ways on, on, on how to study the Word of God. Who here, just, just a show of hands, who here sort of struggles with studying the Word of God? When you open the Bible on uh, your quiet times, like, you don't know you know, what to look for, like what am I reading, all that stuff. Who here struggles with that? I know I do, right? Yeah, and so this is a, this is a great place to, to, to learn and to, to, to really grow in, in some of those skills. What we're going to be talking about today, three things, really. Um, to start off, we're going to start with uh, the doctrine of Scripture. I'm going to go through some very basic doctrines of Scripture. We won't get into too much of it, but just a, just a refresher and reminder I think is really good. 
to sort of help frame uh, everything else that we're going to be looking at. We're also going to talk about hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is exactly what we're, we're dealing with today in terms of how to study the Bible. Hermeneutics is the, is the study in the right ways of interpreting Scripture so that we do not misapply or misinterpret Scripture. So I'll give you some principles on hermeneutics, and then we'll get to some practicality and some application and uh, what we're actually looking for when we, when we study the Word of God. Sound good? So three parts. Hopefully the pizza will come. You guys will be fed uh, that way too. So let's get started with that. I'm going to try to sort of keep everything under an hour so we're out of here by 2 o'clock, Lord willing, uh, but we'll see how far we get. All right. So first and foremost, we got to look at the doctrine of the Word of God. I think this is very important because uh, it, it sort of frames, it, it sets up in our minds at the very least uh, why we are turning to Scripture in the first place, right? Why is Scripture necessary uh, for our spiritual growth? And why can't we turn to the Book of Mormon or we can't turn to these other things? Uh, again, I'll, I'll send these notes out to you, uh, to everybody, so that you can uh, look at that of look that over. But these are, this is the doctrine of the Word of God. You can find this as well in uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I have some references if you want to look up those things as well. But the doctrine of the Word of God has four sort of pillar truths, right? Four doctrinal truths in, in regards to it. Number one, the authority of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the necessity of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. The authority of Scripture the clarity of Scripture and necessity and sufficiency of Scripture. These four things. Let's take a look at what these mean. Let's talk about the authority of Scripture first. What is the authority of Scripture? Right? Basically, the definition of that is all the words in Scripture, in the Bible specifically, right? all 66 books in Scripture are God's words in such a way that it, to, to disbelieve or disobey them, uh, any of the words of Scripture, is to disbelieve and disobey God. What? What does this mean, right? The definition's up there. Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. What does it mean that all Scripture is breathed out by God? We've probably discussed this before and probably have heard that Scripture is inspired by God, right? So let me ask a question. Is Scripture inspired by God? In the sense of, of the, the biblical writer said, man, God is amazing, God is beautiful, I'm going to write down these things about the Word of God. Is it, or is it inspired by God in the sense of, here's the Holy Spirit indwelling in these people, uh, in these writers, and they're, they're writing out the, the, the words of God? What, what, what did it, what, what, what's, what's the correct answer, or what's the, line, what's the correct line of thinking there? So first, people are inspired by the holiness of God, and they're writing things down, or is it that they... they the Holy Spirit is working through them to write uh, things down. First answer, second answer. The answer is, yes, it's, it's the second one, essentially, but even more so, it's not just the Holy Spirit writing things down, but what it means by God breathed, that these are the literal words of God. In the Old Testament, what we see are the, the prophets, whenever they would declare God's word, Right? They would say, thus says the Lord. It's not, here, here's, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing for God. Or uh, here's my opinion of what God has to say. No, thus says the Lord. Even when we come together and we read scripture, right, and we stand, you know, for the reverence of reading God's word every week, 
right? We say, we begin that whole, that whole uh, reading by saying, hear the word of the Lord, meaning the word of God that is in front of us, we believe wholeheartedly is actually the tried true words of God. That is the authority of scripture. Now, it's not, again, it's not just simply inspired. People aren't just looking at the holiness of God in creation and writing things down. This is the Holy Spirit working in, in the writers of the Old and New Testament to put down the truths of God, the very words of God. Now, from this, we get two very foundational truths to our, our belief, which is sola scriptura, right, and the inerrancy of scripture. Because the, the Bible is the very words of God, then we believe in sola scriptura that the Bible alone is the highest authority over the church for determining faith and practice. I think it's important to clarify, it's not saying that the Bible alone is the only authority, but it is the highest authority. Um, of course, this is a, a great tenet of the Reformation. Happy Reformation Day in the, uh, this coming week uh, for those who celebrate that. And uh, for those who celebrate Halloween, well, we'll pray for you. Uh, we're not dealing with that today. Uh, someone cheered back there. Who is it? Uh, in any case... Um, so, so Sola Scriptura is based on the idea, and you, you know the conflict that they had in the, in the, uh, during the Reformation. At that time, the Catholic Church said, no, the, the Pope, the Church, is the highest authority. Tradition is the highest authority over faith and practice. The Reformers said, no, 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 we got to get back to the Word of God. Sola Scriptura, I mean, Scripture alone is, is the highest authority for faith and practice. Not the only authority but the highest authority, meaning we can still look towards, you know, historical books, traditions, we can still listen to pastors, preachers, uh, teachers in regards to their commentary for the word of God. But at the end of the day, what we go, always go back to is the word of God. Again, practicing being the Berean Christians who always go back to the word of God to make sure everything that we understand is true and consistent with God's word. Now, you've probably heard the second foundational truth here, inerrancy of Scripture. Scripture in, uh, in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact or truth. I think that's very key, saying that it's in the original manuscripts. Right? And, and, and the idea here is that because we believe that this is God's Word, and we believe, according to the rest of Scripture, that God does not lie... There's no falsehoods in God. Therefore, we conclude that there are no errors in Scripture. They can't be, because again, it's God's Word. Now, despite Scripture being inerrant, we can often be in error when it comes to interpretation. And that's why, again, hermeneutics is important, why a proper method of studying the Bible is important as well. So that's the authority of Scripture. This is why we turn to the Word of God, because we believe it is God-breathed, we believe it's sola scriptura, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that there is nothing factually wrong in regards to all of these things uh, um, recorded in Scripture. That's the authority of Scripture, the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. Let's look at now the clarity of Scripture. The Bible is written in such a way that its, that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help, being and being, uh, being willing to follow uh, whatever, it write, uh, whatever is contained in the Word. What does this mean? Well, there's a great passage here, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 to 7. This is after the giving of the law, the second time to the Israelites. 
God says to the people of Israel, these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk, to the, uh, talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by, by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Oftentimes when we think about studying the word of God, it's a, a daunting task because we think, man, like, where do I start? How am I supposed to understand any of this? Uh, this is only for theologians. This is only for philosophers, for teachers to be able to understand it. I can't understand it. That is untrue, and that is very much a lie from the enemy. Um, let me just finish this, and then, and then we can think. Because um, the reality is, again, the, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture means that anyone can read Scripture and understand it. Anyone can dive in, open up God's word and hear from the Lord, right? We'll see later that the, the word of God is living and active and sharper than two-edged sword, meaning that God speaks to us through this word, right? It's not just, it's not just to pastors or teachers. Anyone can, can, can read God's word and take away from it. That's why, again, from this command in Deuteronomy, the command is to teach God's word to your children, meaning your kids can understand it. Meaning it, the, the, the scripture is clear enough for even little babes to, to uh, understand it and, and to uh, hear from God through it. Now, there's no doubt that there are parts of scripture that is easier to understand than others. And that's why we see in the New Testament, Paul and even the writer of Hebrews uh, talks about how uh, when he's, they're rebuking the churches, you, you're, you're, you're still drinking milk rather than eating meat of the word of God. And so there are, time, there are, there are um, truths in Scripture that, that we ought to begin with that are considered to be milk or easier truths to swallow, digest, namely the gospel. Uh, and then there are definitely harder truths, uh, doctrinal truths, uh, that are more meatier and, and have more substance and, and maybe takes a little more effort to understand. But nonetheless, all of it can be understood because God has made it so that we can understand Scripture. That's the, clarity, that's the doctrine of uh, the clarity of Scripture. So again, we're discussing the doctrine of the Word of God. We're running through just four pillars of this doctrinal truth. The first one is what? The what of the Scripture? Authority of Scripture. Second is uh, clarity of Scripture. Next topic we're going to be discussing is the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture. This means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will, but is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing things about God's character and moral laws. What does this mean? Why, does it, why is this sort of truth saying that we, Scripture is both necessary and not necessary? Well, this is where uh, special revelation and general revelation comes into play. Special revelation is what Scripture is in that it is only through the Word of God, through the Bible, can we know about the gospel. Can we know about God's salvific plan through Jesus Christ? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's not just a statement. It's a statement, not just a statement about himself, but even his own words, his teachings, right? We can only come to the Father through knowledge of Scripture, um, some references here. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 to 17 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed and what, what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing, excuse me, <coughs> through the word of Christ. This is what special revelation is. You cannot come to the knowledge of salvation through any other world religion, any other so-called sacred text or whatever it is. It is only through the word of God will you hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, period. Okay. Uh, secondly, what this also means, and talking about general revelation in terms of the second part of what, this, what the necessity of Scripture means, that it's not necessary, the Bible is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing things about God's character and moral laws. What does that mean? Well, in Romans chapter 1 as well, verse 18, <clears throat> it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then listen to this, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The reality idea here is that even if you do not have the Bible, just by looking at creation, looking at nature, looking at the things that have been made, you can deduce, conclude that there is a God that there is some intelligent being that has designed everything and it's all his complexities in, in, in the universe. There is a God through that. He can, creation is a testament of that. That's general revelation. So again, that's a necessity of Scripture, right? It is necessary. The Bible is necessary for us to know uh, God's plans of salvation, to know about Jesus Christ, but it's not necessary to, just to, to come to the realization that there is a God. Fourthly, oh, why is that so small? Anyways, uh, fourth is the <coughs> sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture contains all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it is, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. So what this, what this means is that, as this, as this uh, passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, as for you continue in what you, is that the right one? Wait, second, rather, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything that we need to be able to develop our spiritual life, to know who God is, to know his purposes for us, it's all contained in Scripture. There's a, there's a sufficiency there. There's also the idea that everything that's been, that, that God has spoken of in his word is all we need, really, in this life. There are mysteries in this world that we don't know about, that the Bible doesn't talk about, and that's okay. Because God in his sovereignty in constructing his word together has deemed, it, has deemed everything that he said in his word as sufficient for us in this life. So, you know, we might not ever know if, if, uh, if angels have some, you know, sort of uh, uh, 
some sort of economy or some sort of civilization in, in, uh, in, in heaven, right? We can speculate, but because Scripture doesn't say it, I think it's, the idea is that we should, we should be okay with not knowing because what we know is what God wants us to know. Essentially, that's what it is. There's some application to this too as well. This idea of sufficiency of Scripture, it should encourage us to study God's Word because everything that we can study in God's Word is everything that God wants us to know, right? There's, we don't have to assume like, oh man, what if God wants me to discover the mysteries of Galaxy X or whatever it is, right? Well, no, it, I mean, that doesn't say that in God's Word, right? Everything that God wants us to know is here. It also should remind us to not add or subtract from Scripture in the sense that we shouldn't be adding any other Gospels or any other truths or equating any other pieces of writing as equivalent to Scripture because, again, Scripture is enough, right? We should not have to take away as well from Scripture and say, well, you know, I don't, I don't agree with this passage. I'm going to take it out. No, God has included those passages, even those controversial passages like in uh, like the first parts of, say, John chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery, and there's always debate and you know, controversy over that. We can trust that God in his sovereignty has placed those passages in Scripture for our betterment, for purposes, for his will and, and purposes. That's part of the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, it also reminds us that God does not require us, to, as mentioned, he doesn't require us to believe anything about himself or even his redemptive authority uh, or, or sorry, his redemptive plan uh, that is not in Scripture, right? He doesn't require us to believe anything that is outside of Scripture, essentially, right? Uh, at the same time, it also means that he doesn't require us to make into sin things that, not, that are not explicitly or implicitly forbidden in Scripture, right? I think oftentimes churches fall into this category, I'm going to wave my phone around because I lost connection here. There you go. Uh, I, I think sometimes churches fall into this category where we, where we say, hey, this is sin, and this is sin, and this is sin, even though the Bible does not explicitly or implicitly declare that those things are sinful. That goes against the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture because what God declares in His Word is sinful or even implies is sinful should be enough for us. And everything else, everything, you know, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, all things are permissible, but not everything is beneficial. It falls into that category. When it comes to that. Another thing is that uh, we also, in, in, in sort of the contrast of making things sinful that aren't sinful, we also uh, should not make things uh, a requirement for the, spiritual, for the Christian life that are not explicitly or implicitly commanded by God. Right, If we say, hey, you know what, uh, if you want to grow in your walk with God, then you need to, uh, I don't know, say 10 Hail Marys every day kind of deal. That's not in the Word of God. That's not in the Word of God. Right? And for us to say that, uh, hey, you need to do this for the betterment of your spiritual life, again, that goes against the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture, that what God has commanded us in His Word is sufficient for our benefit and, and our growth in our Christian life. Again, that verse in uh, the Second Timothy passage, right? The Word of God is there so that uh, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the doctrine of the Word of God, and just very briefly, 
Again, it is the what? Authority of Scripture. I know people are still eating. <laughs> Clarity, sufficiency, necessity. And not in that order. <laughs> Sounds good. Let's get into some hermeneutics. I know it's a big word. I learned it. At, you know, I, I paid uh, my, this is the cost of my tuition to, to learn this, uh, this word. Hermeneutics, right? It is the study of the principles and methods of interpreting the text of the Bible. Again, the reason why we need good hermeneutics, why we study hermeneutics, is so that we do not misapply and misinterpret Scripture. It's how we prevent heresy from coming and creeping into the church. It helps us understand, essentially, and what we've talked about in terms of the inerrancy of Scripture in the original manuscripts, it helps us understand Scripture in its original meanings. The process that we under, or the, the process that we get from hermeneutics helps us get to the root of what God wants us to understand and hear, right? So that's why we, we study hermeneutics. Now, as we go on, there are very... This, this varies from teacher to teacher, to be honest. Um, and, and, and so you'll find different me- methods to hermeneutics, but they all sort of boil down to the same principles. We're going to look at three laws of hermeneutics before we get into some practical stuff. Three laws of hermeneutics, right? Uh, Number one, the Bible should be interpreted literally. Law two, passages must be interpreted historically, grammatically, and contextually. And law three, Scripture is always best interpreted by Scripture. Okay, we'll unpack this stuff. Any questions, by the way, from the first part, doctrine of Scripture? Right, yeah. So um, that's a great question, and I think that's a whole other uh, workshop to discuss like the, the, the legitimacy of Scripture, the validity of Scripture, all this stuff. But just in, in short, I think, and, and, and I think I'm glad you brought this up. Oftentimes there is um, doubt cast on Scripture, primarily on those, 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 uh, those points. Well, the Bible's been interpreted so many times over time, and like, it's been used to propagate evil and, and things like that. Well, first of all, that's this, for the second point, that's why we're studying hermeneutics, so we can actually get to the roots of what God intended for his word, right? Again, as we saw here, or even as the laws here, uh, we're trying to get to the context, trying to get to the historical stuff, the, the background of scripture, so we actually know what God means uh, when, when, when we read a passage in scripture. So that's one thing, right? So we're not, we're, we're not trying to misapply or misinterpret scripture. That's why hermeneutics is important. The other thing to that, the, 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 to the first part of how Scripture has been um, misinterpreted over time and whatnot, a couple of things. Um, scripture is validated by history, by internal things in, 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 uh, in uh, Scripture, as well as in, in it being if the, itself declaring itself to be true. Historically speaking, and, and I think this is where the misconception comes, Oftentimes when people think about biblical translation, it, they think about it in terms of, have you ever heard of the telephone game? Right? So if I start with Benji, and I tell him a phrase, and he's supposed to pass it all the way down the line until it gets to Joe Fett, the idea, if you've ever played this game, is that somewhere along the road, that it's going to be misinterpreted, a word's going to be added, and then the, the original phrase is never going to get to 
Jophet. Jophet's going to have a different uh, understanding of this. That's not how biblical translations work, right? What we have in biblical translations, first of all, we have, we have thousands, hundreds of, uh, of, of manuscripts that date all the way back to the original writers, for one thing. At the same time, this, yes, Scripture has been translated, first the Old Testament from Hebrew, going all the way from Hebrew to Greek, a little bit of Aramaic to Latin, and so forth and so forth. But it's the, the, the reality of how Scripture is translated is that, say, if, if Benji is the original Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, and then as it goes along, right, say Jophet is now the, the ESV version of that, of, of that translation of the Old Testament, we can still go back to Benji and look at the manuscripts and see what the original text says. There is no gap in between the line of manuscripts and the translations where we say, oh, we can never go back and see you know, what the original authors meant or what the original writing said. No, we have those manuscripts, and we can actually see, hey, this is what you know, the writer of 1 Samuel actually said in this context, in this passage. Now, you might be thinking, well, it's still been translated all, all, the, all, these, uh, all these years. The reality is, Scripture, should I be standing in front of the camera? I just realized. Okay. Uh, the reality is, even in those translations, even in those translations, the differences in translations are so minute that it doesn't even change the, the subject of the text, the theme or the, the, you know, the purpose of the text. It's oftentimes just a variation of the language, because as we know, languages change, they, all, they, they evolve as, as time progresses, as society changes. So even the Greek that we use now, in, if you go to Greece and you talk to a Greek-speaking person, that's not the same Greek that they used in Paul's day. And so as we, as we get more manuscripts that, that verify or, or shed more light on the kind of languages being used, in those in, in biblical times, we get a better understanding of um, we get a better understanding of, of the meanings of, of the original manuscripts, right? Uh, and that's why you know, you say there's always there's always that that group who, who says only KJV, right? Any KJV lovers here, King James versions? That's great. You know, I I love the King James version too, right? I, I love the the thous and whatnots and you know thou shalts, whatnot, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, even the King James Version, the reason why here at church we use the English Standard Version, right, the ESV, the Elect Standard Version, is primarily because we understand that the, the ESV is on a scholarly level and is updated with the current manuscripts that have been discovered, right? So that's why there's differences with some of the, the you know, you'll, you'll see KJB, KJV lovers say like, oh, but they took out this phrase or they took out this word. Well, because now we have manuscripts that actually say, well, I think this is just a footnote from a scribe or this is a, a, a better translation of this Greek word, et cetera, et cetera, right? All of that to say, uh, the way that scripture is translated, and again, it's, it should be another workshop, is that... Uh, is that we can always go back to the original text, at least the texts that are closest to the original, and be able to say, hey, this is what John actually meant. We have manuscripts that date back to the first century um, that are written by the apostles, right, and, and all these things. Another great, what, what I found um, amazing 
right? Anyone journaling here, right? Great. Anyone journal when they're do, you're doing devotions, right? And you write down scripture passages, right? What I found amazing uh, when t- taking this stuff in history class at school is that a lot of the, a lot of the confirmations of, of what scripture contains being accurate is from the writings of church fathers who in their own devotions they wrote down John 3.16, right? And they wrote down to a T, this is what John 3.16 means, this is how it spoke to me. And a lot of the, the times when, when biblical translators are, are translating things, they're looking at their early church fathers' devotions and saying, hey, right, this, this you know, church father is referencing this passage from John and it matches up with this manuscript of the earliest copy of John, so this must be what uh, the original manuscripts mean. I think that's really cool. I think it should be an encouragement to all of us when you're writing or journaling, write down biblical passages because you don't know who down the road, 100 years from now, right, if Jesus doesn't return yet, that uh, they'll pick up your notebook like Elder Benji, father of, you know, the early church of Plus Life, is, uh, wrote down, you know, this passage. This is, this is correct, right? Correct translation. It's really cool. There's more stuff that you can learn. Uh, there's a great uh, apologist for the biblical literacy, uh, and sort of translations named Wes Huff, right? Uh, came out of Tyndale. I was in his class, you know. Uh, really great stuff. He, uh, you can look up his, his stuff, and uh, he'll, he, he does an amazing job at explaining these things better than me, for sure. In that state of general revelation, here is, here is he sees a creation. Yeah, so, yeah, I see what you're saying. Sure, sure, sure. Sounds good. So, um, Brother John here is, is asking about general revelation. That was something we just talked about there, right? In terms of the necessity of Scripture. The idea that, again, any unbeliever can look at creation and conclude that there is a higher power, intelligent being, designer, all that stuff. And then the, the question is, what should an unbeliever do then with that knowledge, right? So, first of all, if we believe, right... Even in that text, in Romans chapter 1, the pastor says that they suppress the truth of God, right? So even having seen creation, they suppress the truth of God, that there is even a God. So, so working past that, if we believe that if the Holy Spirit has regenerated the heart so that they are open to those things, to the things of God, then it is the responsibility of that unbeliever to go and seek out the truths of God. That can only be found in Scripture. Now, the reason why I say I don't... I don't think that it's necessarily the job of, of the unbeliever to do that because, again, they are in that state of depravity and rejection of the truth of God. I believe it is the church's job to go and bring the gospel out to the unbelievers. That's, that's, that's the reality of it. When we, as believers, are faithful to the Great Commission, right, then we should be the ones going out to these unbelievers and say, hey, look, see this outside? It's been created, right? It's, it's, it's plain to see that there is a creator, and then we have the, the, the special revelation, the truth of God, the word of God, to be able to say, hey, this is, what, this is the God who created all of that. So three laws of hermeneutics. I'm going to move on to this, and then we'll have more questions after this section, too. Cool? Three laws of hermeneutics. Law number one, the Bible should be interpreted. The Bible should be interpreted literally. Uh... Yeah, the Bible should be interpreted literally. Uh, that means that the Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. So unless a passage is, is speaking symbolically, metaphorically, 
poetically, um, then we need to take pa- the passages, passages of Scripture as, as, as we would take any plain or normal, uh, normal thing in its normal meaning, right? So, and I know this might, you know, might put some questions on people here. When the Bible says that the universe was created in six days, right, that is literal, right? It's not, it's not being figurative there. It's not being metaphorical. It's not being symbolic. And of course, we can, so there's some leeway there for speculation in terms of how were those actual literal days or, you know, are those God days where it's like, you know, a thousand years is a day to God, a day to a thousand years to God. But in any other cases, we should always take uh, the Bible to mean its literal, uh, its literal sense, right? Um, I think it's very important, and sometimes we, we, we do this even you know, as a preacher and preaching the Word of God, and we hear this as well even sometimes in our, even as we go into devotions, in our own personal devotions, that we make spiritual what is meant to be factual, right? Literal. It's like, oh, the... You know, the same way that, that uh, you know, Joshua marched around Jericho. I'm going to march around my problems and it's going to fall in Jesus' name. Like, there's no doubt that God can help us overcome our, you know, our problems and help us through trials and whatnot. But at the same time, that story of Jericho was just a historical, factual story, Right? So don't take, don't make what is, don't make spiritual what is meant to be taken as factual, is presented as factual. Okay, so again, the Bible should be interpreted literally, literally. Um, here's a good example of this. Oh, so in regards to this, there are. So what does that mean for us then when it comes to applying scripture, right? So does it ever mean? Does it ever mean, say, like, we can't ever take um, the story of David in the Old Testament and say, hey, you know, that's not from, like, and say, hey, I can't learn from that. That's David's story. I can't apply that to my life. No, because as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians here, it says, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This is talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat, drink, rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in that single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and destroyed by destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. What Paul's getting at is here, like, the idea, again, take Scripture literally. Don't spiritualize what is meant to be factual, but we can still learn from the mistakes that, uh, that the, the people in the Old Testament made, right? I think oftentimes when we try to relate to the characters of the Bible, we try to relate to their victories and their strengths, right? I'm going to be like David and take down the giant in my life. No, you're more like David when he fell to temptation with Bathsheba. That's the reality of it. Right, I, I think I think what's great about the Old Testament and the characters there is that we can definitely relate to their weaknesses, 
we can definitely relate and even see how, you know, history repeats itself, right? It's, I've said this before that the Bible doesn't just tell us what happened. It tells us what always happens. It always tells us human nature, right? So uh, we can relate to Scripture in that sense, right? And that's, I don't think that's really taking it in a spiritual sense. It's just saying, hey, I'm pretty much like these guys in their failures, their weaknesses. Let's talk about law number two. Passages must be interpreted historically, grammatically, and contextually, right? Uh, this is important. So when you're unpacking Scripture, when you're studying Scripture, it's very important that you look at these, uh, these things, historically, grammatically, contextually. Historically, it's to understand the culture, the background, the situation, um, the, the setting of, of when that text was written. For example... We know the story of Jonah is a story of the prophet running away because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, and he you know, goes on a ship to go to Tarshish, right? It doesn't tell us why he hates the Ninevites. It really doesn't uh, in, in passage. Maybe it sort of hints to it towards the later chapters of Jonah, but it's like right at the beginning of Jonah, he hears a word from the Lord to go to Nineveh, and then he doesn't go. Why is that? Well, if you look at the historical context of the text of the book of Jonah, you understand that Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrians who conquered Israel. And so being part of the nation that was conquered, Nineveh, uh, uh, Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh and preach the, the good news to these, his enemies, essentially, right? But you can't understand unless you actually do some digging and do the historical context. That's why, uh, by the way, uh, study Bibles are really good because usually before, at the start of a chapter or start of a book, they'll discuss the historical significance and the backgrounds for that text. So really important, uh, really good tool to have, a study Bible. So that's historical context. You've got to know the culture behind it, the background behind it. As, we've, as you probably recall from uh, our Gospel of John series, I, I really tried to get into sort of the Jewish perspective of what's happening there. Again, when Jesus says he's the light of the world, he's saying that during the Feast of Booths where there's a light procession, and you can't understand this, really the depths of what Jesus is saying until you really get into some of the uh, historical, cultural backgrounds uh, behind it. Grammatically speaking, um, we need to interpret Scripture through, uh, the, through proper grammar, right? Again, Scripture is, is the Word of God, Right? And there is structure, there is nuances, there is very much a, a grammatic structure to the Bible that you can easily follow uh, in terms of, uh, of how, how to read it. We see this all the time from, um, we see this all the time from Paul's writings, whenever he says, therefore, right, it's, it's because he's building upon an argument in the word of God, so we need to look at it from basic grammar and, and, and recognize the nuances in the original Hebrew and the original Greek, however it looks like. I think a good example of this uh, in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, it's not up there, but it's, uh, Paul says, actually let me just read it for you here, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, uh, we are waiting on our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our, listen to this, great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, Someone can misinterpret that and say, hey, Paul is saying we're waiting on our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two different people, right? See the, see the nuance there? But proper grammar would say 
No, he's associating great God and Savior as one person, Jesus Christ. See the difference? Right? Very nuanced. So having to follow proper grammar is really important when you're interpreting Scripture. It's the same thing as we, this passage is similar to saying, you know, my, uh, my brother and elder, Benji. Right? I'm not saying my brother, who's not here, right? An elder, Benji. Two different people. One and the same person. So keep in mind those nuances, those grammatical uh, nuances. And then contextually, I think this is important too. Um, when you're studying passages in Scripture, see it in the, in the context of where it is in Scripture, the verses surrounding it, the chapters surrounding it, the book, uh, where, where that book falls in terms of Scripture, um, because there, there are different types of books in Scripture and uh, different categories in Scripture. And I think it's very important that you, that, that you know your place in terms of the passage that you're studying in, where it, in, relation to, in relation to where it is in Scripture, because you can misinterpret things or you can sort of apply things to yourselves, make principles that, that you should not uh, make out of, out of passages that uh, are either meant to be poetic or just historical, all of these things. So uh, I've sort of broken down sort of these categories for us in terms of how the Bible is broken up. I can take a picture, I'll send the notes again. But in the Old Testament, there are technically four, but people often split the last two, uh, the last one up into two, right? There is the law, the first five books of Moses. There is historical books, right? And we see that there. There is the writings or the books of wisdom in terms of Job, Psalms, Prophets, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Psalm, Solomon, uh, major prophets, and then minor prophets. Why is this important? Why is this contextually knowing where scripture passages fall into or books fall into in these categories important? Because oftentimes, and we'll see this is, this is actually happens a lot with the book of Job. Job is non, wait, is fiction. It's not historical. And oftentimes, preachers, even you know, Christians would treat it as if it's a historical book, but in the Old Testament, it was never viewed as a historical book. It was always a poetic writing. And obviously, because there's parts in Job, you know, when Jesus, not Jesus, well, I guess Jesus, God, God and uh, the devil are having a conversation in heaven, like, who's writing that down? Who's present to be writing that down? All of that to say, we can misinterpret, we can misinterpret uh, meanings of books of the Bible if we don't categorize them properly, Right? Sometimes we can take things that are historical, as mentioned before, and make them spiritual. Or sometimes we can take things that are meant to be, um, meant to be poetic in the Song of Solomon or, or Psalms and make principles out of them, right? Uh, again, d- uh, don't create principles out of poetry. I think that's a good rule. Don't make principles out of poetry. So when... When, when David is crying out to God and he's calling out these impeccatory psalms where he's calling judgment down on his enemies and stuff, that's not what we're supposed to do, right? It's not, it's not a principle. That's not something that we should be doing, right? Uh, that, is, that is David expressing his lament, his, his anger towards his enemy through this writing, right? Uh, so the New Testament is broken down this way. The Gospels, historical epistles, and apocalypses. Apocalypsis, kind of like eucalyptus. I don't know. Uh, I always have a problem 
pronouncing it. In any case, the Gospels, as you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fun fact, Mark was actually written before Matthew, but it's just Matthew's is generally received as uh, uh, the, the oldest, I guess, in terms of manuscripts-wise. Uh, but yeah, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is the Gospels. Historical, the only historical book that we see in the New Testament is the book of Acts. Acts is actually uh, part two of the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the one who's writing Acts, and is in the original text, it was meant to be just one book, but we have it divided. It's more historical. It's not a gospel. Of course, you have the epistles written by Paul and the other apostles. Uh, and you have the only apocalypse book, which is in, in Hebrew culture and in ancient times was a specific category of books um, in that culture as well, similar to how we have like nonfiction or uh, biography. In ancient times, this was a category of its own apocalypsis, uh, and that's why Revelation is written very distinctly and, and, and written in a way that resembles what an apocalypsis genre book ought to be. Okay? Those, are the, those are the categories in the Old and New Testament. So let's go to <coughs> excuse me, law number three, just very quick, quickly here. Um, Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture, right? Scripture is, is interpreted best by Scripture itself. This is the idea of seeking the full counsel of Scripture. If there is a passage that you are unable to understand in and of itself, right, uh, we can always go back to other passages in Scripture to be able to interpret those things. Because, again, if we believe that all of this is god brief that there is a consistency in what God has communicated to us, that means that, you know, he won't contradict himself. So he won't say in James, for example, that, uh, you know, faith without works is dead, without it actually meaning something else or, or uh, being consistent with, with the rest of Scripture where it says, right, that salvation is by faith, not by works, right? There's a consistency there. Use Scripture to interpret Scripture also look for parallel. A good way to do this in terms of interpreting Scripture with Scripture, look for parallels, look for uh, typology, foreshadows. Like today uh, in the sermon, we talked about how, um, you know, Paul often uses athletic references in his letters. So look at, um, in, in, our, in our case this morning, there is, you can compare what he means in these athletic uh, passages and see that there's similar themes that he's always talking about. There's typology. Typology is that, for example, in the Old Testament, it deals with Old Testament, New Testament, and Christ fulfilling those typologies, really. Where in the Old Testament, you'll see things like, for example, uh, Abraham offering Isaac as, his, as a sacrifice to God. Isaac willingly going up the mountain to be a sacrifice and carrying a, you know, a stack of sticks or you know, the firewood on his back. That is type or foreshadow of what Christ would ultimately do on the cross. There's a lot of those things in Scripture um, that we can look to, typology, right? The whole sacrificial uh, uh, process in the Old Testament is a foreshadow of Christ sacrificing himself on the cross, too. So look for those things. It helps us un interpret and understand Scripture overall. Now, let's get to some practicality. How to study and apply Scripture, Right. That's sort of the foundations of things. Anyone, any questions on hermeneutics? <coughs> uh, 
Oh, sorry. I don't have a question about hermeneutics, but uh, I had a question about like something we just talked about. Sure. Um, so say like um, the book of Job, I understand that most biblical scholars think that it was a book of wisdom and sure. it was like, say like quote unquote fictional, but like, say like, how would you differentiate, like say like the first chapter of Genesis, which is talking about God forming like the earth and God forming man and everything. Uh, as to the book of Job, because no one was there to see like, like the first chapter of Genesis, most people think that it was just Moses uh, uh, receiving the words from God or whatever. But like, how would you like differentiate that from say the book of Job? The question, I don't know how to repeat it. <laughs> no, that's a very good point. I think that's really good. I think uh, because the intent of Genesis is for Moses, of course, both being inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? The intent of, of Genesis through Moses is to write down a historical account of the world. Versus Job, in whatever intent the original writer of Job was, is to communicate these, you know, the, the interaction between Job and God and, and all of those things. There's a complete difference in the intent of the actual writing itself, right? I think that's one way to differentiate that. Make sense? Cool. Very good. Man, this, so this, I feel like this, this is part of the other workshop. Workshop part two and, and things. But that's okay. So the apocryphal books in the, in the Bible, the reason why we don't have this, multiple reasons. For one thing, um, they, they don't date back to um, the, the original writings of, say, the apostles. So, for example, the Gospel of John, we can look back earliest manuscripts, first century, second century, and say, okay, this is most likely written by the apostles. We can say, this is gospel, right? At the same time, some of the apocryphal books, like, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, I think is, is one that people always talk about, right? Doesn't date back. Doesn't date back to that early, uh, that early of a century. There's no manuscripts that go all the way back there. Most likely what people have done is, uh, I think they were talking about it being sort of like plagiarism, but instead of copying somebody's work, all you do is just put, your, put their name on it. So some, somebody from the medieval uh, times, uh, not, the one Don, not, not the one in Toronto, not medieval times, Anyways, <laughs> somebody from that time wrote this, this piece of work and they slapped Thomas's name on it and said, hey, this is from the Apostle Thomas, we gotta read it. It's nothing new, it's always been there. And the reason why it hasn't been included in scripture, and I love this, is because all, in all of church history, right, uh, all the early church fathers and the early church did not consider it as gospel, right? Um, the idea is, oftentimes when these new gospels pop up, like the Gospel of Thomas, it's like, oh, we discovered this new gospel in the in the Arabian tomb of whatever, and it's this. It's like, it's nothing new. It's been around for many uh, of church history, and the early church fathers have already discounted it as not consistent with the rest of the gospel. Why we consider Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as gospel is because uh, there's consistency with it in regards to the rest of Scripture, and um, at the same time, we, we, there, there's great evidence that we probably can't go through right now in terms of it actually being inspired by God. Um, and at the same time, you know, when uh, it's interesting because the early church would have had the four Gospels at hand as their, as their, as their Scriptures that they would turn to all the time. So it's not like, you know, like centuries after the early church, we put together, there's always this misconception that, it, what is it, Constantine and like the 
Council of Nicaea or something put together the Bible and, and whatnot. That's not true, right? The early church has always had the four Gospels as part of their, their faith and practice to learn what Jesus taught and, and whatnot. Um, and, and that's why we have them as our scriptures as well. If you want to learn more about these things, again, great apologist for this, Wes Huff. So the question was, are there any versions of the English, like the translated versions of the Bible that we should avoid? Um, like the, like say the NIV, the not inspired version, like that? No, I'm joking for anyone who likes NIV. NIV is fine. It's pretty up to date and whatnot too. Um, in terms of what Bible to use in, and study, again, you can, I, I would suggest ESV because it's up-to-date in terms of manuscripts and translations, things like that. Um, so it's a good Bible to study from. If you want to study from KGV, that's fine as well. You can learn about unicorns uh, in, in the Old Testament. Um, it, I, I think the push is, is if we really want to be students of God's Word, we want to look at a Bible that, that is actually consistent with the translations of of from the Greek to, to the old, you know, from the Hebrew, all that stuff, right? So whatever Bible that you use, you can use uh, American Standard Version, and the thing is pretty much on par with uh, um, ESV, right? Uh, things like that. <laughs> I was going to get to that. <laughs> Any translation that takes too much liberty from the original text, I think you should avoid. It's good, and, and part of like what we're going to talk about in terms of practical, you know, practical application to all this um, you can use different Bibles to tr compare to one another, right? Have a message Bible, if you want, open to a, with an ESV version, and you can just compare what the, you know, what, the, what the passages say, right? But I would definitely say, if you want to, especially if you're trying to study God's Word, and, and that's the point. It's not just like, oh, you know, speak to me. Like, you know, I, I want to hear something in my own language, in my understanding, right? That's not the goal of studying Scripture, right? And we'll get to that. Uh, I would choose a Bible that uh, actually tries to get to the to the core of God's word. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. In addition to that, for I guess parents teaching children. Sure. What kind of like do we give them kids Bibles or are we mm. teaching straight from an ESV version? Yeah. Or supplementary like documents or like. Uh, yeah. So what's so I'll give you I'll just give you you know what works for me and Faye at home. We do both. Right, uh, when we're ever, when we're ever, whenever we're sort of telling stories to our kids, we'll use a, like a story Bible, right, with the pictures and whatnot, and we'll read those things. Although I, you got to be careful with some of those because some of the things that I, I've been reading to them, not reading to them rather, is kind of sketchy because uh, yeah, it's interesting some of the, the stuff that they're trying to teach kids. In any case, uh, but at the same time, there are times where we're actually uh, reading straight from Scripture, ESV, to our kids. Right? Because again, if this is God's word, then we believe that this too can speak to kids, even at their age. No doubt there, there are you know, comprehension levels to everybody, right? not just kids. And that's why we, even when you're teaching, discipling kids, there's always, even not just discipling kids, but new believers, there's always the idea of milk, as we talked about, right? So the easier truths and, and stories in the scripture, and there's also the, the deeper truths, the harder truths that uh, you can look at as well. So I, I honestly, I would do both. When I was growing up, my, my, my mom read me the book of Revelation to sleep. Like that's, 
That's, that was my story time, right? Like dragons and the devil, demons coming out of uh, the pit. Okay, that's great. That's, you know, but here I am today. Messed up, right? <laughs> uh, saved by grace, amen. So I, I would do both, right? I think being a parent, you can sort of judge where your kid is at and see where their comprehension level is at. Um, and yeah, like I, we were, I, to be honest, funny enough, I, I've been reading Revelation to uh, Judah and Olivia too. Uh, but, uh, but, but at the same time, after reading it, trying to communicate it to them in a way that, you know, like, yeah, heaven, uh, in heaven, you know, we're not going to cry anymore, we're not going to hurt anymore, you know, all these things. But it's, it's, it's not just a matter of reading, but communicating, teaching, right? So. We're at 206 here. <laughs> we're going a little bit uh, over time, and we're trying to get to the practical stuff. Uh, can we hold some questions? I don't know if there's more questions, but we'll hold, and we'll get to some practical stuff. Yeah? Cool. How do we study? So how do you start reading the Bible, right? When you sit down and say it's your devotional time, what do you do? You got your coffee with you. You sit down. Uh, you got your pumpkin spice, whatever it is uh, that you like. You're sitting down. You have your journal out. You have your Bible out. What do you do? Right. Pray. That is the most, like, that has to be where everybody starts when, uh, when we start reading the Bible. We have to pray. The idea of scripture, again, is not just to fill our heads with knowledge, it's to hear from God. That's also, again, going back to, you know, should we use the message Bible, all that stuff. Um, we, I think people have translated the word of God, like the message Bible, so that we can hear it, we can hear it, understand it clearly, uh, even in our own words. But at the same time, I would argue that maybe that's not what God wants you to hear. Like, that's not the message or the truth that, that God wants you to hear. Right? And that's why I would say, um, again, pick a translation that, that, that is more closer to manuscripts, but also that where, where God will be able to communicate to you clearly of what his, what his original uh, truths were in Scripture. Right? So pray before you read. It has to start with prayer. You're, you're communing with God as you read the, the Word of God. Come with expectation, come with uh, uh, an expectation that God is going to speak to you because, again, the Bible is a living word of God, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, another point there, I, I don't think this is in order, but uh, practice exposition and not imposition. Oftentimes, we read the Bible trying to sort of impose, that's imposition, impose our ideas, our beliefs, what we want to hear, Right, so we'll go. We'll 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 go <coughs> into uh, the Bible, sort of looking for something that we want to hear. And when we don't hear what we want to hear, it's like I didn't get anything from this. Well, because you're looking for the wrong thing. Exposition is the idea that you're just trying to hear what God is saying through Scripture. You're 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 just taking it as 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 what as uh, as the Scripture presents it. Right, practice exposition not imposition. That's also what we do when we preach here at Plus Life. We practice exposition. We don't try to impose our theme or our ideas into what we're preaching. Um, I like the top one because I think oftentimes we do this, right? Who, who does this in the morning when they're uh, reading their Bible? All right, Lord, speak to me. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Amen, Lord. Thank you for that word. Today, off to work. Don't do that. Don't do that. As much as, that, as much as God can speak 
in that way to us, right? That is not how we study Scripture. The idea is that we are meditating on Scripture, that we are studying Scripture. That, so go through it systematically. Start with a, a book in the Bible and go through that systematically, chapter by chapter, right? Uh, don't randomly pick. Uh, so I'm sort of shooting myself in the foot here, right? Uh, but just evidence that, yes, God can speak through random, you know, verses. Uh, when I was... When I was still, uh, when, before me and Faye got engaged, and I wanted to go and ask her dad for permission, whether I, or not I can marry her, I went to his work. He works at Home Depot, right? I was sitting in the parking lot. I was sort of getting nervous and sort of like praying to God, Lord, like, you know, is this the right time? Should I do this? I opened up my Bible app, and the verse of the day was, uh, blessed is a man who finds a wife. is like a precious jewel. It's so random, Right? Like, why in the world would the Bible app make that the verse of the day? It's so very specific, right? Anyways, but that was the way that God spoke to me, right? Um, but don't do that, right? Don't, don't rely on that in your personal devo- uh, devotions. Don't pick a random passage of Scripture. Go through the Bible systematically. Of course, you know there's Bible reading plans that you can uh, uh, pick up. I think that's good. Uh, if you want to learn more doctrinal truths, I always recommend the book of Romans. That is a systematic theology of the Bible. All the doctrines of the faith of grace is in there. If you want to suggest uh, somewhere to start for a new believer, always the, the gospel of John, because that is, again, the purpose of John is so that people can actually come to know that Jesus is, in fact, uh, Messiah, the Son of God, uh, and that by believing, you know, we have life in his name, right? So go through it systematically. Uh, I would also suggest, and I, uh, this is what I do in my own reading time, disregard chapters, numbers, titles, and verses. Why is that? Because chapter numbers and verse numbers, all of those things, even the titles, if you oftentimes you'll see, like for example, my book, my Bible right now is just open to Isaiah 62. On the top of the Isaiah 62 is Zion's coming salvation, right? Um, those titles and numbers were not in the original text right? Those titles and numbers were just there to sort of to systematically organize scripture, but they're not in the original text. And oftentimes, if you go into a passage reading a title, that'll start to influence what you're, gonna, what you're trying to find in it. So just le- don't disregard the title, read it, see how God's speaking to you in, uh, in that passage for you specifically. Um, and again, oftentimes, you know, when we think um, I'm going to read. I'm going to read the Word of God. We often think in terms of I'm going to read a chapter a day. Or I'm going to read X amount of verses a day. Well, oftentimes the way Scripture is is organized is that there's a continuation, and for some reason the Bible translators like to put uh, end of chapters in the middle of a passage. For example, right? Like for example, chapter uh, John chapter seven, chapter eight. That's one big long discourse that is taking place there, but for some reason it's divided up into chapters. So if you stop in your devotional time and say, I've already read a chapter, I've already read John chapter 7, but then you don't continue to John chapter 8 where it's supposed to continue, naturally continue, you might miss out on uh, what the, the original text is meant to be communicating. How does how you start? Right, sort of just prep you right for that. Uh, I don't re- recommend pumpkin spice latte. Uh, when you think. I've never had it. Right, but if the world likes it, clearly we shouldn't like it as believers. Anyways, uh, it could be we can redeem, sure. But again, the reason why we pray, the reason why we are studying God's word in the first place, is because, as Hebrews four twelve says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two 
and sword, piercing to division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We believe, wholly, wholeheartedly believe that these, that the word of God, um, that God speaks to us through his word, that he can convict us, that he can illuminate things to us that uh, we have been blinded to. Right? That's why we are studying, why we're going through this workshop. It's not so that we, we can have more knowledge, but so that we can, uh, we can we commune with our God, hear from him more clearly. Right? It is a living word of God. So let's look at the five Ps of what to look for when you are studying the word of God. So you have your Bible opened up. You're going to look at it systematically. You look, you're say, starting at 1 Corinthians Okay, what are you looking at? You're going to read a chapter a day. What are you looking for? These five Ps are just some things that you can look for, not necessarily what you have to look for all the time, because, you, again, you can read this chapter and have God speak to you however way. But if you want to sort of look through uh, chapters systematically and um, sort of have a clear idea of what to look for, here are some five Ps to look for. Because 100%, you'll always find one of these things in a passage of scripture, right? Firstly, person of God or the person of Christ. These are characteristics of God demonstrated or communicated in a passage. So when a passage talks about how, you know, God is loving, that is connected to his, his character of being a loving God, right? So you'll, you'll, you'll see that in a passage, some sort of characteristic of God in a passage. You'll also see promises to keep. So when Christ says, uh, you know, um, I'll never leave you or forsake you to his disciples. Those are promises that you can cling to for yourself, right? Uh, and, and hold on to as part of uh, sort of your arsenal from Scripture of what can bolster your faith in times of trouble, things like that. Just promises to keep. Many, many of those in Scripture that you can look for. There are precepts to follow. <coughs> These are commands, right? If God says in his word to do something, um, You'll find that that's, that's what a precept is, right? His commands. These are things that we ought to obey, right? Great Commission, another good example, right? Go make disciples. That is a command from God. That is a precept to follow. Problems to avoid. <coughs> Again, we can look at um, parts of Scripture and see from the examples of people, um, or even when it's explicitly or implicitly stated that uh, there are, these are sins to avoid, right? Things that, that you shouldn't be doing as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. <coughs> and then principles of truth. Principles of truth are um, just basically doctrinal truth that you can unpack further, you can study deeper, things that to, to comprehend, right? Doctrines of grace, predestination, all of those things are, fall into that. These five things, regardless of what passage that you're looking at, you'll find one of these five things in it, maybe multiple of these five things in Scripture. And so whenever you're, whenever you're studying God's word, writing these things down, I think these are always good, especially if you're into journaling to uh, see what God's speaking to you that day. You can write down these things, and it'll, uh, it'll, it'll be beneficial. Is everyone taking notes here? Right? So hermeneutics, and then uh, these five Ps. Everyone has... I, I'm going to leave this five Ps up. Well, actually, I can't because I'm going <laughs> to go to this other one. But... Um, but everyone's written down these five Ps. Let's practice it. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 to 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Using those five Ps that we just wrote down, um, let's, let's get some volunteers using those five Ps and, and see what we can get from, from this passage. Very cool stuff. So this is one example, right? Um, these things that, again, these five Ps that we can look for in Scripture, we'll always find it um, in, in whatever shape or form. But oftentimes when we do find it, that's often the way that God is speaking to us and teaching us. So look for these things in, in, as you study Scripture. So we're going to do a little more exercise in this, right? Uh, how many tables do you One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, goodness. Oh, actually, hold on. Uh, Joe and Darnell, can you guys join Dave and uh, Jeeves group there? <clears throat> so using, using the five Ps that we just talked about, as well as the laws of hermeneutics that we talked about. Remember the three laws, right? Scripture is to be taken literally. Secondly, law number two. Context, right? Historical, grammatical, and uh, contextual contextual. Right? Context of scripture, make sure to look at that. Number three is scripture interprets scripture best, right? Okay. <clears throat> Using those three laws of hermeneutics and these five Ps, I'm going to give each table a passage in scripture, right? Uh, and I want you to break it down for me contextually. Give me something contextually about it. And then at the same time, give me something using the five Ps from it. Okay? Let's put it into practice here. Uh, this, this, this uh, table up here with Benji's group, can you look up Exodus chapter 20? Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 to 6. <coughs> awesome. Uh, this table up here with the uncle, uncles and aunties here. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 to 16. This uh, table over here with Precious. First uh, Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Let's give a hard one. Let's give a hard one to uh, Deacon Jeevan Darnell here. Uh, let's see there. Uh, uh, John 11.35. John 11.35. Let's uh, give this group back here. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 to 33. Daniel chapter, Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 to 33. And the group back there, John 8, 32. John 8, 32. John chapter 8, verse 32. Yeah. So what I'm looking for, okay, from all the groups is something contextually about that passage that I just gave you, whether it's historical, grammatical, whatever it is, uh, where it is in Scripture, whatever, right? Um, you don't need to do a deep dive into the historical significance of it. Uh, just do it as best you can, right? Uh, and then one of the five Ps, right? One or two of the five Ps that you find from that passage, okay? I also, just to give a hint on, on this, I purposely, I purposely gave you only snippets of the verse or passages because part of 
again, this whole proper hermeneutics is that you see the context of it in relation to the rest of Scripture, all right? So I know there's one group back there who has one verse, <laughs> two words even, <laughs> and uh, it's very important. It's very important to look at the context of that. So I'll, I'll give you guys some time here. So just very quickly, uh, we're, I'm going to go around to each table. Uh, can someone read from your group the passage I gave you? And then, again, give me something contextually about it. Uh, and then give me something from these five, five points. Start now. Yes, please. Okay. What is the passage I gave you? The passage was Exodus 20, verses 5 through 6. Um, for context, Wait, we... can you, can, sorry, read the verse, read the verse. Oh, okay. Um, Exodus 20, 5 through 6 is, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Awesome. Okay. Um, context, we say that you need to read from the start of the chapter, at least, or even from chapter 19, to get the context that this is God giving Moses the Ten Commandments. Right. Um, and especially verse... Four is important for understanding this part of God's commandments because sure. verse 5 just says you shall not bow down to them or serve them yep. but verse 4 introduces that by saying you shall not make your, for yourself a carved image or any Good. likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath so Good. Yeah, that's context um, the five P's we only got through three of them. <laughs> you know, again, you don't need to find everything okay. in this, but again, just tell me what you got. So for the person of God, we found that he is a zealous God. Um, he is a jealous God. Sure. He is a loving God, and his love is steadfast. Mm -hmm. um, for the promises of God, we found that he promises that he will judge sin and that he shows steadfast love to those who love him. And for problems to avoid, we found don't make idols or have images or icons of God. Exactly. Thank you so much. Very cool. Can I get to the second group there? Can you read us, tell us the passage and then read us the, the verse as well, and then give us the context and some of these five Ps. Uh, so the passage is for Samuel 16, verse 7. For the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, mm. because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Yep. So from the prior verses, we were able to get the context that God had rejected Saul as king, yep. and God wanted to use Samuel, was instructing Samuel on picking the next king. Yep. So he gave him instructions to go to um, the house of Jesse to find a king amongst its, his sons. Yep. And didn't tell him who exactly it was going to be. So Samuel was going in like, okay, here's an instruction from God. I'm going to go to this house and then I'm going to follow the next instruction. God is going to tell me who, which one of his sons is going to be crowned king. Yep. And then in verse 7, what had happened was Samuel had already determined in his heart so after seeing Eliab, one of the first, first sons, that because of his stature, this is definitely who God will pick as king. Yep. 
And there we now see the person of God rebuking Samuel and saying that um, do not look on their appearance. Outward appearance. Their outward appearance yeah. because, yeah, that's... God looks that's, at the heart. Exactly. Yeah. So five Ps from that, just very quickly. Uh, so I just mentioned that the person of God... Yeah, yeah God himself is in there. What, yes. what, what about his character is being communicated there? That he's sovereign because he knows more than us as humans. Sure. Because yeah. our view is limited. Because Samuel, um, Samuel only saw the physical appearance and made the conclusion. Sure. Um, and then the other, <laughs> the other thing just connected is the problems to avoid making judgments very quickly. Good, good. Very good. Thank you so much. Okay, let's go to, the, to Natalie's group back there. Can you read us the verse and yeah. give us some of the context and stuff? Go ahead. Uh, verses Daniel 4, 28 to 33. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is, this, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Awesome. So some context to that. Where is that? Where, where, what's happening there? Oh, um, I mean, he's getting punished, obviously, because of his mentality or his uh, perspective on things. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll get into the five Ps, right? Sure. Um, so uh, Wait, problem... so where, is, where is that passage located? Sorry. Uh, Daniel 4. Uh-huh. Uh, verses 28 to 33. Uh-huh. And this King Nebuchadnezzar, so there's a little bit of background there, right? King yeah. Nebuchadnezzar is king of who? What? Babylon. All right. And then, uh, I mean, again, you don't have to go to the deep dive of it, but uh, contextually speaking, who's writing this? Oh, yeah, Daniel, yeah. Daniel the prophet, very cool. And so... Uh, this is taking place during when? A long time ago. <laughs> A long time ago. That's right. Uh, but essentially, when, when uh, the Israelites have been taken captive by Babylon, right? And King, yeah. Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar is uh, the one who's ruling over them. So some, some historical context there. That's good. Uh, and then so five pieces. Let's get to it. Um, so problems to avoid, which could be seen in verse 30, where he thinks he's doing everything for, you know, his glory and his majesty. Yeah, what is that called? Uh, pride. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So obviously problems to avoid, like yeah. don't do that. Um, yeah, don't do that. Or you're going to have your then, nails uh, grow out and, and all that stuff. And then uh, prom the promise, I guess, that was kept was uh, that Nebuchadnezzar would suffer. He was literally told that, you know. Um, and then principles of truth, which can be seen in verse 33, um, where it was, uh, it says immediately what had been said about him was fulfilled. Yeah. 
Um, and then the person of God, because God is just, um, and he literally did what he said he would. Yeah. Very cool. Love that story. Uh, let's go up to here the front. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. What is the passage? Please read it and then... Uh... The, the passage is First Timothy chapter 1, 15 to 16. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, however for this cause I obtained mercy. How beat, sorry, for, how beat for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ shew forth all longsuffering a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to the life everlasting. Very cool. The context is uh, um, it's, uh, Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy mm -hmm. as the young pastor and that the principles we found this is the promise of God the, the person of God or the characteristic is that God is the savior, he is trustworthy yeah. forgiving Mm -hmm. And the promise is that his mercy is available to all. And uh, the precept, Christ is the only Savior. Precept, it yeah. cannot be a... Is because there's no other God. He's the only Savior. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the problems to avoid is don't dwell in your past. Very good. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Love that passage, right? Chief of sinners, again. Well, so maybe you guys have a slide. Why is Paul saying that he is uh, the chief of sinners or, uh, or, or that statement there? Yeah, because of that. Because of his past, exactly, right? Before he became the apostle Paul, he was Saul, tormented, persecuted the church, and um, he's talking about his redemption there. Very beautiful passage. Very good. Okay, uh, let's go to the table right behind them. Read your passage your long, long passage, and then uh, uh, give us some context, give us some uh, of these five Ps. All right, so our long passage was from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses, verse 35, and it was um, Jesus wept. Um, so in this one, through the three laws, the first one, <laughs> the Bible should be interpreted literally. It's just um, Jesus wept. Um, and then... Law two, historically, grammatically, or contextually, um, grammatically, I think this uh, verse is very, uh, it emphasizes on this character of Christ in his humanity, where it just says he took that moment to weep with those who are weeping over Lazarus' death. Mm -hmm. um, and if we go over to verse four, where, is it, where it says, before all of this, um, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I think that part first highlights the divinity of Christ. And then when we move on to this verse later in the passage, it shows the humanity of Christ where he is, um, takes the moment. He could have done the miracle right away, but he took the moment first to weep with those who are hurting. Um, and then the scripture, I guess, is best translated by scripture. Um, there are other verses where it shows, well, I guess before I get to that, the person of God, we see their humanity of Christ. And then we see uh, the promises to keep that Christ is near to the brokenhearted. That's in Psalm 34 or Hebrews 4.15, whereas he is not a God who is unable to emphasize with our weaknesses. So he was relating to those who were hurting in that moment. 
the precept to follow uh, was, uh, I think sometimes we should, uh, or all times, we should take the time to just grieve with those who are grieving or hurting, uh, just like Christ set that example for us. And then problems to avoid is in verse 37, when you read down, it says, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I think uh, it's just important for us not to doubt in God because we may think uh, that he knows what we, he should do, but I think in that time, it's his will and his plan for us in that moment to possibly just be with us, grieve, and he has a greater thing to unfold later, faith, which is right? have faith. And then verses down is where he does the resurrection of Lazarus. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, I, I specifically chose that small verse because it, not just to challenge you guys to, you know, look at the other passages around it, contextually speaking, but to show that even in the smallest verse in Scripture, you can get something out of it, right? So if you're ever in the mentality to say, oh, man, but I read the Bible, I never get something out of it. Like, no, no, no. It's maybe just how you're reading it, maybe how you're approaching it, but even the smallest uh, verse, smallest passage in Scripture, you can get something out. Okay, last group at the back there. Uh, great job, Deacon Darnell, uh, Jeep. You guys get to keep your jobs. Very good. Uh, back there. All right, yeah. So uh, John chapter 8, verse 32 says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's, and, hear, uh, let's hear some context and stuff. Yeah, so in regards to hermeneutics, obviously, um, we can honestly take this word literally, like from the Bible of the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then in regards to <clears throat> the actual context of what's happening in this passage is if you look earlier in chapter 8, um, it's also where, you know, the whole woman caught in adultery, that situation happens. And then there's a whole sort of like conversation with the Pharisees where uh, Jesus is talking to them as I am the light of the world. And they're kind of, uh, you know... Uh, a little disbelieving of that as well. And so after all of that conversation, it's the way that this passage kind of starts is in 31. And it says that Jesus goes to the Jews who believe in him, uh, which is important um, because the saying that the truth will set you free uh, is not just for anyone and everyone. Um, it's very important in the aspect where it's like Jesus turns to the Jews who believed in him and he said, if you abide in my word, uh, you are true, and you're truly my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Right. Um, very good. Which is very important in that aspect. And I think the other thing to, you know, uh, look out for as well is, you know, um, using Scripture to kind of decipher Scripture as well, because in John 14, 6, Jesus also says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which is a very important uh, sort of connection because... Um, God or Jesus is not only saying that you know the truth will set you free he's he's also saying that you know I am the son of God I am the truth so if you're believing in me then you'll be set free so that's important in terms of contextual aspect and then I'll let Tina talk about the peas she wants to so in going into like um one of the first P's, which is the person of God, as Bryson was mentioning before, it's who he is. He is the truth. And so when we take that passage, um, I want to take that literally. So if we follow the truth, if we follow what he said, if we follow him, yeah, um, then we will be set free. Um, another uh, P that was also uh, shown was the promise to keep. So... Um, provided that you are a true believer, 
um, you will be set free. That is his promise to us. Good. Um, and another one is precepts to follow. So if we looked at the previous passage beforehand, it says abide by the truth and then you would be set free. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess the last one is a problem to avoid. So he is setting us free from sin. He is um, he's essentially... Um, we have a big problem in us, within us. We are born with it, and he's saying that we, if we abide by him and his truth, um, we will be set free, and that's, yeah. Yeah, it speaks to verse 34, because 34 talks about, he says that everybody who practices sin is a slave to sin. Yeah. So it's a, it's a kind of a call forward to that as well, yeah. um, because essentially as a problem to avoid is that sinful life and that sinful pattern. And so it kind of just all ties together. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Awesome. So how was that exercise? Right? Good? Awesome. So again, like regardless of what passage you open the Bible to or what you're studying, you can find those things. Um, you, can, you can go even more in-depth in terms of contextually, historical, all that stuff. And oftentimes you'll, <coughs> you'll find a lot, a lot of cool... Uh, uh, a lot of good, good nuggets of truth in every passage of Scripture. So those are the five Ps. Just as we close out here, let me suggest um, a couple more methods here that you can use to, to study God's Word. Uh, you, can, okay, you can do a word study. So you pick, out a specific, uh, you pick out a specific word. For example, we're just reading in that, that Corinthians passage about reconciliation. You can look at what does reconciliation mean in the original text. Uh, and just do a whole word study in, in regards to that. You can do um, the character of God, a character of God study. So we've even hearing about how God is loving. We can go into uh, a study about uh, God's character of being a loving God, right, or being a just God, or being a, a, a you know, uh, whatever, whatever other characteristics that we read today, uh, Jesus being truthful. Um, there's also verse memorization. That's a very good way to study scripture. We study uh, uh, when the Bible says in uh, <coughs> Psalm chapter 1 and how we are to meditate on, on the Word of God day and night. That's essentially what memorization is. We have it really easy in that uh, we, we, you know, in, in, in the way that the Scriptures were taught in the Old Testament is that, is that they studied full passages, full chapters uh, of the Bible. Um, you can journal, as we talked about. You can compare translations we talked about. I, le I left reading commentaries as last because it's, as much as commentaries are good for scripture study, it's important that we take God's word first and hear from God first before we sort of get insight from other co commentaries, which is also good. <coughs> last thing I would recommend, just as we close up here, um, <clears throat> do exactly what you guys just did, right? Get together in groups and study the Bible together. Because even from, I'm sure you'd notice from your own conversations within your own tables there, different perspectives uh, coming together to interpret, interpret God's Word gives, gives us a holistic interpretation of God's Word, and it's good and necessary. Uh, so good way to, to study that. Um, let me, as we just close up here, because I think we're running out of time here, um, let me just close up with <coughs> this verse that, that really sort of was my... Uh, my go-to when I was studying uh, when I was studying in seminary, 
uh, Tyndale. Something that kept sort of my motivation of why I was going to school. It, it's in, uh, yeah, <coughs> excuse me, 2 Timothy 2.15. Do, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The push here is that every single one of us, every believer in this room, ought to be, as Paul is commanding Timothy, <coughs> a worker of God, one of his, of his kingdom that is constantly pursuing uh, not just ministry, but also rightly handling the word of truth, right? There's one, uh, one pastor, one great theologian said that everybody's a theologian, Everybody's a theologian. Everyone has an opinion of who God is, understanding of who God is. But at the end of the day, right, uh, what, is, what, what keeps us from heresy, what keeps us from, uh, from going into falsehoods is that we are, that what we believe, <coughs> excuse me, is consistent with the word of God, right, aligns with the word of God and the truths of God. Um, so this is where this verse comes in. We need to Make sure that we are rightly handling the word of truth uh, in every aspect. Cool? I think we are running out of time here. But, okay. Yeah, so um, if you have any more questions, just maybe you have any quick, quick, quick questions. Sounded like a duck there. Quack, 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 quack. I just wanted to ask if you discourage the use of, um, like, for example, the Bible study app and, like, the Bible study plans that are on there. Sure. Or, like, purchasing a plan to, because we talked about building discipline and self-control. So, uh, for a believer who wants to ensure that they're disciplined in their study of the word, taking all of what we have just learned today into account and wants an extra resource to keep them account well on track not necessarily accountable but like on track to ensure that like you know okay maybe for them it's like maybe taking off that as a mm -hmm. box would help them be disciplined in their study what would you advise a believer to do instead of just like relying on like a word of the day or something are you like tools kind of thing to to help yeah so i i again um, and it's like a structured bible study plan a good tool Oh, is that the question? Is a, yeah. a structured or, Bible reading plan a good tool? Yes. And how do you yeah. identify the ones that are good enough? Yeah. No, I, I, think, I, think there, I think one that sort of keeps you in, uh, that gives, that helps you study the Word of God in a good pace, right? I think there's some, there's, there's one Bible plan before that was like uh, called B90X, and you had to like read through the entire of, entirety of the Bible in 90 days. And as much as that's great, uh, you, already, you also skim past a lot of things, right? So I would say any Bible reading plan that helps you in a good pace, helps you understand uh, Scripture, and doesn't sort of like push you right away, right? Um, I would go with that. I've also seen some Bible reading plans where it's like, here, read this chapter of John, and then the next day it's like, read this chapter of Galatians. I don't recommend that. Again, if you want to study Scripture, then the... The good way to do it is to study the entire book for what the, like, you have to understand, right, like, the epistles, like, say, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, that's one letter, right? In real life, if you got a letter from someone, you don't stop halfway and then, you know, pick up a different letter 
right? Another day, you read through the entire thing to get the entire context of uh, what's being said, right? So yeah, things like that. Bible reading plans are good. If you guys are looking for Bible reading plans, reach out to me. I can probably suggest some good ones. Thank you.